I love that I have no idea what I'm going to do because I'm so excited to figure it out. Like it's like, it's not a stressful problem. It's like a, what do I really want? What, what is the story really about? Yeah. Because it's, you know how you said, oh, I think we did it. Like it's that thing you work it out, you talk it out, you write it out, revise it out until you go, ah, there it is. There it is. That's it. Right. You get to that place where you're like, it just, yes. everything just sings. Like it's just humming and everything's singing the same song. And that, that's how you know you did it. Hello and welcome to Your Next Draft. I'm Alice Sudlow, and in this podcast, I'll teach you how to finish your first draft, edit your next draft, and craft a publication-ready novel. I am a developmental editor, avid reader, and story nerd. I help writers write and edit books they're truly proud of, and then publish stories readers love. Every week, I'll give you quick, actionable tips you can use right away to finish your next draft. Stick with me and with your editing process, and soon you'll publish an amazing book. Welcome to your next draft. Today, I have an extra special episode for us. I am sharing the mic with my first ever podcast guest. I want to introduce you to my editor colleague and wonderful friend, Kim Kessler. Hi, Alice. Hi, all of Alice's wonderful listeners. Very excited to be here. Kim and I met back in 2017 when we both went through the StoryGrid Editor Certification Program. And we have continued working together ever since. Kim is an absolute rock star when it comes to editing stories. And whenever I get stuck on an editing project, she is the first person that I turn to for advice. So a lot of my clients have actually secretly gotten some of Kim's advice as well. (laughs) But today, Kim and I are going to do something that we've actually never done before. Kim is also an author. Her debut novel, According to Plan, was published in 2020, and she's also written a lot of short fiction, and she has several more novels in the works. So today, I'm actually going to be Kim's editor, and I am going to edit her writing here live on the podcast. Well, live for us. I was thinking about this. It's technically not live, I suppose, for all of our listeners, because they're not actually like watching a live stream. We're not quite at that level yet. This way you can edit out. You can edit out all my crying later. You'll be able to just cut it and they'll never know what a baby I am. So that's right. fine. Right. We'll, we're flawless. This is going to be a super short episode because the fact of the matter is just that Kim is flawless. <laughs> I'm, flaw- I'm flawless. Like there's, there's nothing to Oh my to God, that's so funny. So uh, It's going to hurt real bad when that comes out to be not true here in about 30 seconds. So keep talking, Alice. Oh, no. Keep talking. <laughs> no. Kim has written a scene for us, and I am really excited to dive into it in this episode and share my best thoughts and feedback for her to help her make it even more awesome. So, Kim, actually, you're feeling like the pressure is on you to have written a great scene. (laughs) I'm feeling like the pressure is on me to have come up with feedback that is editor-worthy feedback from a fellow editor colleague. It's funny. I'm editing your scene. You're editing my feedback. Yes, I was thinking about this. (laughs) And when I first started editing for people and doing this, and I went to put, put my book out into the world, and I was like, if I'm doing this for other people, like, I have to be good at this. Like, my book has to be good, or they're going to be like, I'm never trusting her with anything. And what was great about that whole process was, one, the only way I ever got my book across the finish line was by enlisting the help of colleagues, and also ultimately just deciding what you actually care about, like what what your measure of good is, like what is it you're actually trying to achieve. And so since I have 
I have decided that emotional connection with the reader is the most important thing to me, then that's how I can measure it. So I'm trying to take off these other things like out of the way. In thinking about all of that, it made me just just think differently today about showing up as a writer even more vulnerably and like what a good like stretch it is. I think it's just a really good stretch for an editor to have to be edited like live on a podcast. Like I think it's good. I think it's good for everyone. And you're next. Did I tell you we scheduled this? You're next and I'll do yours. And that way you can really show your listeners what it's like. So anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. Improvising all the way through the yeah. podcast. Yep. Yeah. Through, the, through the process. So all that to say, before we really get into your scene today, Kim, I want to share a little bit of context for our listeners about why we're doing this and why I am really excited for this. So first off, I'm really excited to share my feedback and get to read some of your writing as well. Like both of those pieces are really fun to me, especially because since we're both editors and since we both have gone through the same editor training, so we were really kind of given the same language to use when speaking about story. I'm really excited to see where you go with the things that I bring up because a lot of the fun and challenge of editing is figuring out how to communicate the thoughts that I have about a story in a way that the writer will really receive and will be helpful to them. And since we already speak the same language, I can like skip definitions of terms in a lot of these things because I'll say a thing. You'll be like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Turning points. Again, like mm -hmm. we know exactly what we're talking about. So I'm excited to see how that kind of influences the way in which you're able to like go even farther with the feedback mm -hmm. that I have. And then second, I get a lot of requests from writers who would like to see a sample of what developmental editing looks like with me before they decide whether or not they want to work with me. Do you ever get that, Kim? Do you get requests for developmental yes, editing samples? Yes, I get requests and then I promptly tell them that doesn't exist, but we can have a conversation. And that actually, it's like the conversation is the sample, right? Yes. Developmental editing, I don't not really going to write very much down for you. We're just going to have a really cool conversation. And then that shows you what to go write down. Like, it's just different, right? Exactly. Exactly. And developmental editing is really about the large scope of a story in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So if someone sends me like the first 500 words of their story, it's just not going to be representative of the developmental right. process if I send them feedback on 500 yep. words. So I really understand why writers want a sample of developmental editing because you want to know what you're mm -hmm. purchasing, especially when you're making this really big investment in editing. But developmental editing particularly, especially like above and beyond all the other types of editing is really difficult to essentially present in a small sample. Mm -hmm. So this whole podcast is actually part of my solution to that. Since I don't offer sample edits for developmental editing, I wanted with this podcast to give writers a taste of what working with me will look like so that they know what they're getting into if they do decide to work with me one-on-one. -on -one. And I thought, what better way to show people what editing looks like than to actually edit live mm -hmm. on the podcast? Yay. So that's what we're going to do here. I'm really excited. For the next hour, Kim is my editing client, and we're going to think through her story in exactly the way that I do with all of my clients. She's shared her scene with me, and we're going to help her take it to the next level. And the other great thing about this, I think the things that I share with Kim are also going to be applicable to a lot of writers. Like I think, Kim, that the challenges that writers face are often pretty universal. Mm -hmm. So even as you and I dig into your scene, I think that there are going to be a lot of things that other writers can pull out 
to apply to their own scenes too, even in terms of the specific feedback, even Absolutely. though your scene is obviously Absolutely. unique to you. I think that there's just yep. so much to learn from seeing anyone be critiqued. So a heads up to all of our listeners. You can follow along and listen to this conversation and get a ton out of it. If you want to go a step deeper, you can also read the scene that we're going to critique. Kim is being super generous, extra vulnerability <laughs> here, and she is sharing her scene so that you can read it too. You can grab that scene and read it by going to alicesudlow.com slash Kim scene. And I'm also going to link to that in the show notes, of course, so that it's really easy to find. And I actually recommend pausing this episode right now, getting that scene, reading it, and then coming back here to listen to our feedback. If you're in a place where you have the time and the space to do that, I think that it'll be really helpful and hopefully really fun to get to read her scene. And it'll give you context to understand all of the feedback as we go through this whole episode. If you're driving, though, or if you're not in a place where you can read that scene right now, then don't worry. We're, we're going to give enough context that you'll still be able to follow along with the critique. And the other thing that you're going to get when you go to that link is my scene analysis of Kim's scene. I'm going to show you the notes that I took when I was putting together my feedback for Kim. And I'm also going to send Yay, them to thank you, Kim, because she hasn't seen <laughs> I have them not yet. seen them yet. <laughs> no idea what's about to happen. Kim, is there anything that's on your mind that you want to share before we dive into your scene critique? I guess I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful for the chance to be, to get to talk about the scene. Sometimes like showing up in spaces like this is what it takes to get me to show up for myself. So the fact that me writing a scene and having you analyze it helps you is actually helping me put my writing first. So it's a cool, it's a good win, 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 you know, because it's something that I really want to be able to do is to make my writing a priority. So anyway, I'm just excited. I am absolutely in the writer's seat. I'm not going to argue with you about anything. You know, I'm just like, I'm here to learn. I have lots of thoughts and I know the way we are. So I'm, I'm just excited, but I absolutely feel like I'm writer Kim today. And that feels really special. So yay. Wonderful. I'm excited to get to be the editor for writer Kim. Let's dive into this critique. Okay. So I am literally going to walk you through the same questions that I walk my editing clients through. So the first thing, the first place I want to start is just tell me a bit about this story. I know that this is the opening scene of a book that you're writing. And could you kind of describe for us a bit about the story that this scene is yeah, from? Yeah, so, so I have this story of basically I'm going through a lot of, uh, you know, renaming, self-identification, that kind of thing. And so I have a lot of stories about bisexual women figuring out that they're bisexual and how they're managing that in their daily lives. So this happens to be one of them. Um, and I basically, I opened with a scene, like I had a scene in mind, just not this scene, it's the next scene. <laughs> basically, you have um, you have a widow um, and sh her, she's lost her husband in like, whether it's, an, whether it's a regular sort of everyday accident or it's an actual like military training accident, like I'm not entirely 100% sure and I don't know that it matters right now. But basically, there's some reason that a husband has died in an accident. She's a widow and she's going home. They used to live overseas because he was in the military and that's where they lived. So now they're coming home and she has to go reintegrate back into life. She's moving back in with her parents in a town that she's never lived in and, and all of that. So and then basically it's her, the whole story in the present. It's one of those stories that's like present and past, right? So we're going to do the multiple timelines thing. There's what you're currently going through. And how you're trying to survive on the day-to-day -day grieving as a widow 
all kinds of guilt and shame and all kinds of stuff that she's going to have to deal with. And then there's the what happened that you're processing thing that happens in the past, right? So in having her processing all of this stuff, and then there's the story about what happened in the past and how she kind of came to understand these things about herself, the choices that she made and the effect that those choices had on her and coming out to her husband and the effect that had on him and like all of these things. And then he dies. And now what do you do? You know, and like all this stuff. I think a lot of it just comes down for me that this is probably the most personal story I've ever written, probably. So going for full vulnerability here, right? Ultimate fears right now. So this scene is just the opening scene just to get us going. The scene that I originally had is like the next scene in the present where you have someone actually like landing at the airstrip and coming out and just sort of, it's like how the scene would open in a movie, which is how my brain works. I watch the movie in my head and then I like edit it in my head and change the visuals and then I go, yeah, that's the scene. And then I write the scene down, right? Like, so in watching the movie, the opening scene is the, you know, the military plane or whatever private plane that comes in and lands at one of those hangars they get out of the hangar and they come down and then they've taken the casket and they've put it in the middle with the flag over it and all of that you know and they've done that thing and then like she has to like walk in and like see her parents and his parents and like there's this whole thing and then there's like everything that's going on inside of her and everything that she knows that nobody else knows like Nobody else knows the fight that she had with her husband before. You know, no one else knows. Like, she hasn't told anyone anything about anything except for her husband, and now he's dead. And, like, so it's, like, just basically you have this entire truth trapped in your body, and you have to go deal with the rest of the world, and you have you don't know how to do it. Like, you don't know how to do it. So, anyway, that was the scene I had in my head, and now this is the scene that's kind of, like, before that, I guess, which is where I opened it because I don't know why. It was just, like trying to set it up enough to give us enough information. I don't know. It felt like doing the next one felt too far for some reason. It was just like, I'm not ready to, and maybe it just was me. Like, this will be an interesting question that I'll have for you of like, is this actually the opening scene or not? But like, it felt too far for me to go with like, just immediately like coming out of the plane and having landed. Like, I guess, I don't know. I just wasn't ready to write that scene. Like about actually having to face the parents and like, go through all of those things. Like I need a runway to like get to that, metaphorically speaking. So that's really interesting to me to hear like the scope and direction of this story because I think that, I think that this scene probably, like in a way this starts, this kind of starts with the inciting incident because the inciting incident in a way is her husband's death. And so that's kind of kicking off the direction Mm -hmm. of the story. But with the context that you're giving me, it does seem like this starts a little bit before her story really kicks off. Like, it does sound like that landing and getting off the plane and entering the new world. Like, that's your entering the new world Mm -hmm. moment. So I would say, like, I think this is my I would say go ahead and write the book starting from here and see where it takes you. And then I would have in the back of my mind, is this scene going to stay in the book or really was this scene the way to get into writing the rest of the book because it very well could be which is totally legitimate right. like you're figuring out for yourself at this early point in the process who is this character where is she starting where is she coming from how does that impact mm-hmm. where she's going and some of the things that we see in this scene are kind of her before world like her leaving this before world means that we see her letting go mm-hmm. of soul and letting go of 
of all of the place that she is coming from. So I'm keeping that in mind for the longer scope of the book. Does this scene stay or not? Right, which I think is a totally perfectly valid question. One thing that I am using as a, I don't know, it was it was a helpful device and like a frame of reference to like get into the scene and to kind of think about how I wanted to handle past and present because I'm still, you know, I'm still figuring that out. But so first of all, Jane Eyre is my favorite novel. Okay. And I love the version with Mia Wasikowska who plays Jane. The way the screenwriter wrote that film and the way that it's cut, it opens in the all is lost moment or in the dark night of the soul moment. So this specific film version of the story is nonlinear. It starts after the all is lost. It's as Jane is leaving Thornfield and leaving Rochester and is going out onto the moors and she's like in the rain and it's so sad. And then she stumbles in almost half dead to sisters and that house that she, you know, ends the book, whatever. Like it's like over, not ends the book, but like that's the place she gets to, which is like a very late part of when you're reading the novel. And then when she's there, she starts to have these flashbacks to her childhood because she's, you know, she's kind of delirious at that point because she's been out wandering, walking, no food. It's just a mess. And so it makes sense psychologically that she goes back and she starts hearing her voice by her cousin when she's a kid. And then it jumps us back to the beginning of the book, actually, with the actual opening scene of the novel where she's sort of being hunted through the house by her cousin. And then it proceeds forward from there. And then every once in a while, it'll jump back forward and jump back. You know, that also is kind of why I was thinking here and the idea of starting after the all is lost which then you lead up to later like you find out what caused her to run away and you're like oh no wonder and so in this case we're going to build up to that moment and then go oh that's oh that's this moment that's why we started where we started you know so that's anyway that was the thinking behind all of that yeah and i love that i love that story structure what it essentially does is it means you have two stories. You have the present story and you have the past story, and each of them have their own story structure where they each have, they're each building to something. And we get the hint of what the past one is building to because we see the results of it, but we don't know what happens to produce those results. So we have a lot of curiosity Mm -hmm. about how that came about this whole way through the book. And then by the end, we kind of have these dual reveals. We have the reveal of how she has proceeded from that result to where she lands now. And we find out what happened originally to get her into that crisis at the beginning. And I think that that's fabulous. I think that it's challenging, but I think that it's wonderful. I think it'll be a really cool structure. And especially for this story, because my next question for you is, why is this story important Mm -hmm. to you? But just to jump ahead and like accidentally put words in your mouth here, knowing that I'm (laughs) doing that. So like, Great. But some of the why here is kind of like, how do you rebuild yourself after this Mm -hmm. crisis, after this self-discovery, after this Mm -hmm. loss? Where do you go from there and how do you rebuild Mm -hmm. yourself? The story that's more automatic to tell is how do you hit the crisis? How do you go from normal life to am in crisis because that crisis is a really climactic moment like i'm sure that the loss of her husband in whatever way that it happened i'm sure that the coming out to herself and the coming out to her husband and the watching how all of that impacts her life i'm sure that's a really big kind of climactic experience so that could be a story on its own but then the where do you go from that question is a really big question and it sounds to me like that's kind of more the core that's the part i don't this. i don't know how to write like i'm 
it is wide open. Like there are ideas and I'm like, start it, some of it starts to feel really cluttered. Like this is probably way too many threads. And I'm just, I can't figure out where the present story goes exactly. And yeah. because, right, this is when you're writing stories that feel so close to where you are in your own, like, you're trying to figure it out thing. Um, my husband is alive and well. Mm-hmm. I have come out to him. He's very supportive. I hope he's safe every day. <laughs> I don't want to live this story. But it also is like, you're right. Who, how do you process this information? Like, I don't know. So I'm going to write the end of the yes. story and I'll go, ah, it feels good. I'll do that. Like, I have to just write it for myself. You know, so much of that. it is just that. I mean, the the story itself, like the literal actions are not autobiographical, but the emotional yes, journey exactly. has a lot of connections with your own emotional yeah. journey. And you've got to figure out where that landing is, which is also the part, again, back to that why I'm imagining putting words in your mouth. But like we've had a lot of conversations yeah. around this and have some shared experiences here. Like a lot of that is like the thing that draws you to the story, this idea that you really want to explore, the thing that's most important to you about figuring out yeah. how do you get there? Like what is the end? What is the yeah. emotional journey in the after mm-hmm. part of the story? So the past is almost like exciting context because we want to see the drama of how these things played out. But it's not the core right. story. The core story is what is the, the recovery and the healing and the mm-hmm. resolution like? What does new life look yep. like afterwards? So since I just tried to answer this question for you three times, <laughs> I'm going to toss it back over to you. Why are you writing this story? What is important to you about this story? What is it that you want to share with readers? What is it that drives you? It says this is the story. You have to. Yeah, I think it's a lot of information processing and trying to make sense of your own experience. And I think as you're discovering things that felt really good, you know, you're like, hey, this feels really good and I'm going to share it with this person. And then to have that person die or not be there or whatever, or if you hurt them in some way, still a little bit like, "Hmm, I wonder how her husband's going to take it and what are the exact circumstances that he finds out. And there's a lot of decisions to make there. But I think it's, it's almost like she did what she had to do to like, come out in the story and then now it's like okay but now it's back the truth is just yours again we're gonna have to do it again but now it's so it's like and all the things that i think that felt exciting and good now they're kind of like they're all covered in this dark thing of like if it's your fault that you you know what i mean like if it's your fault that this happened or if it's your fault if it's perceived that way which even if it's just perceived that way by you if you've got guilt and shame you already had enough guilt and shame around the topic in for the first place. Worked through that enough to be able to like have an experience where you understand yourself and then you're able to share it. But then you put this other thing on top of it and then now it's like, now it's making you question everything you thought you'd figured out. So a lot of deconstruction, a lot of trying to name things, name truth, and just ultimately come to a place of where you're you're deciding what it means to you. Like you're deciding becoming your own authority, right? Where it's taking back the authority and the power that you've given to other people to tell you if you're okay or not. We're not asking for their permission and you're not asking for them to validate you or or even forgive you or like anything that like those are irrelevant. Those those questions don't apply here, right? That's just not actually the thing because you're literally the only person that can do that and you have to make peace with your own, which I am currently working on. So that's kind of where all that goes. There's some churchy elements, you know, not like hardcore, like that's not going to be her hardcore issue. But I want to like at least have 
some edges in there that, you know, can kind of go to that. And then, and then too, I think even with kind of just bringing in, you know, the, having her be in a, in a military marriage and a military environment in that way, it's not just a heteronormative relationship. It's a very specific heteronormative relationship. And the wives in those situations are very specific and the way the groups are. And, and again, it just, in that way, it's probably a lot of it is a, maybe I'm using it metaphorically as like just neurotypicalness, right? Like uh, whether it's neurotypicalness or just heteronormativeness or uh, I don't know. It just feels like everybody agrees that this is the way it is and these are good things and this is how we do things and you don't fit in here. And, you know, so I'm just trying to find these places where it's just constantly I have a character who's just doesn't fit where she is and she's trying to figure out how and if that's okay or not. And like, I don't know. So anyway. I love this so much. If I were to distill everything. Please. Just I don't distill well. <laughs> when it's myself, I don't distill well at all. Brevity <laughs> is not my strong suit. But I'm going to hand you the sentence that I just came up with, which is, how do you find the authority to be at home with and okay with mm-hmm. yourself in a world where a lot of other people are telling you the right way to be yeah. okay? That's great. And I love that you've specifically looked for what are the contexts that are going to most challenge her own authority for determining her okayness. Both the church, but also the military, like specifically identifying, okay, so that's her challenge is this sense of self-ownership and identity and okayness. And who is going to come against, who is most most effectively, most powerfully, and most relatably going to come against that Mm -hmm. sense of authority. I love it. Now that we have talked through some overview context of the story as a whole, I wanted to just kind of start there and get some direction so that as we look at this this scene, we kind of know the story it's contributing Mm -hmm. to. But obviously, this is not a full developmental edit where we're talking about the story as a whole. We're really digging into this one scene specifically. So the most practical suggestions that I'm going to give you are going to be really directly related to the words on the page Mm -hmm. of this scene and what I'm seeing as your strengths and your opportunities here in this scene. So I am going to go ahead and open up my my scene analysis over here, which means that I am leaving the script that Kim can see and only (laughs) I can see the the answer that we're going to now has (laughs) <laughs> the answer is here. Yes. The first thing that I wanted to do was just call out some of the things that I think you're doing really well in this scene. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's definitely let's start see. there. I, I wholeheartedly appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> first up, I really love the atmosphere mm. in this story. We've got mystery. We've got sadness. You capture her sadness really, really powerfully, really clearly. That just leaps off the page from the very opening of the scene. There's all of this mystery of she knows what's going on in this scene and we, the readers, don't know what's going on. We follow the action that's happening in the scene, but we have hints at this larger context that we don't have access to. Like there are lines where you say that the flight attendant had clearly been briefed on the 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 purpose of this flight and the way to act respectfully on this flight and i'm like oh 
the flight attendant got a brief. I didn't get a brief. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why we're on this flight. And I love that because it sparks all of this curiosity mm-hmm. and mystery. And we see the stakes kind of get raised and raised and raised throughout the scene. That was something that you did really nicely in this scene of raising the stakes. When we see the casket, that's very different from when we're just getting into a uh, diplomatic vehicle at the mm-hmm. beginning of the scene. We're like, oh, this is much more serious than just like, we got to go catch a flight. And then another thing that you did well in this scene, which I just wanted to call out as a tool for other writers as well, is you left placeholders all the way through this scene for information that you're going to fill in later. Placeholders for everything from a character's last name to a specific town or to details in description or the amount of time that she had lived in Seoul, like all kinds of placeholders for pieces of information that you can go back and fill in later. And also, once you know the scope of the story, you'll know which of those pieces of information are really necessary. But also, you didn't use those placeholders so heavily as to avoid writing the scene, which is a real balance to strike. Like, I've seen writers get really stuck trying to figure out all the minute details of a scene in the first write, which the minute details of how many leaves are on the ground when you're walking down the path. That doesn't matter. It just doesn't. So, like, tell us the story and we'll figure Mm -hmm. that out later. But I've also seen writers who are like, okay, so, and then at this point, she either turns left and goes towards the monster or she turns right and goes away from the monster. And I'm like, okay, that that is the scene right there. Like, (laughs) we need to know. (laughs) What does she Yes. Yeah, that's great. And then the next scene, they're like, either she's now fighting with the monster or she's running away, depending on the choice she made in the previous scene. And I'm like, following all the branches of possibility of you don't have to commit to anything. Right. I get it. Right. You are writing a great choose your own adventure book. (laughs) Flip to page 40. (laughs) Yep. Right. You have not written enough decisions yet to turn this into a great first draft of a novel. So I really loved the balance of placeholders that you used. Those are just some opening notes of strengths, and I'm going to have more strengths of this scene as we go through, but I'm going to go ahead and dive into the scene analysis questions. Now, for everyone who's listening to this podcast, I went through these scene analysis questions on a previous episode. Oh, darn. I should know off the top of my head which episode that it was. It's in the series of episodes that I did on what a scene is and how to edit a scene. So that starts with the episode, what is a scene? Easy to find. What is a scene? And then there are several episodes. There are six episodes total in a row that really dig into what a scene is, scene analysis questions, how to analyze a scene. Everything that I'm doing in this episode, everything I'm about to do in this feedback, you can get deeper context for how I arrive at these thought processes if you go listen to those episodes as well. So I highly recommend them as an addition to this episode. The first thing I'm going to do is walk us through identifying the story event in this scene. And that starts off with, what are the characters literally doing? And what I landed on for this scene is that they are catching a flight, which I think is great. She's catching a flight. One of the things that I love about this is it's automatically very active. Not every literal action in a scene has to be super active. I mean, you can have a lot of scenes where characters sit at a restaurant and they eat dinner together, and that doesn't inherently have conflict in it. That's just people hanging around having a conversation. And then you have to find the conflict within the conversation, which is totally possible. There are tons of great scenes where characters have a lot of interesting conflict over a dinner. But this literal action, catching a flight, is inherently active. There's movement here. There's there's change. We know that something's 
moving forward. We know that something's happening. And we all kind of have this automatic tension around catching a flight because I'm sure we've all had those moments when you're running to catch a flight and you know the plane's going to leave. So we kind of have this automatic stakes that are built into this action, which I really liked about this. And then what's interesting about this is even as she's catching a flight, we kind of shift those stakes because she's being transported by a diplomatic escort to a flight. And as she goes to the flight, the gates just open for her. They just take her through security without her having to do anything. They drive her right up to the door of the plane and she walks onto the plane. So like there's this experience of, oh, wow. okay, so like she doesn't have the flight flight stress that we have about flights. Like we both establish these these stakes and then we also twist it in a way to relieve them and replace them with other questions, which I really liked. So I thought that your literal action on the page of your scene was really great. Yay. Yes. What does the character want in this scene? I'm actually going to toss this question to you. I have an answer for it myself, but I'm going to see what would you say that Janie really wants in this scene? And you're trying to avoid your feelings, first and foremost. Avoid feeling negatively, right? I don't want to look at anything that's going to make me, remind me of how I'm actually feeling. It's a lot of just avoidance. You're in total avoidance of reality and you're just trying to I mean, it's just coping, right? It's like, I've got to get through this. I've got to cope. I've got to mask and cope my until I can get through this place to a place somewhere down the line where it will be safe enough to fall apart. That is not now. So I have to just, it's just trying to just hold it. I mean, that's how it feels to me, I guess. Trying to just like get down to business to get there. I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to look at that. Like, oh, it's weird. It's interesting to be like so aware of what you're trying to avoid. I guess I just resonate with that feeling where you're like i see it and i don't want to deal with it i literally am choosing not to like i am not doing that so i guess that's i don't know what that means but that's just what comes up yeah no and i landed on the same place as that i mean i think that you've got that funny tension there you're exactly right where she's both actively trying to avoid feeling anything or seeing anything or notice anything she's kind of trying to shut off the world and at the same time She's just got this constant flood of detailed input where everything is registering yeah. with her. She's a fully aware. So I resonate with this a lot I just as a person. It feels like that hypervigilance where you're like, you're in fight or flight right now. And you're like constantly, you're trying to feel safe and you're, you're screening your surroundings for danger so that you can avoid the danger because you're in, I guess you're in flight at that point. You're in flight mode, which is metaphorically makes sense with the plane, I guess, like, you know, whatever. So it's just, it's something that I've noticed. I know that feeling very well. So we're just really aware of things, but not because you're an observant person, <laughs> because you are scared to death of whatever, you're, I mean, whatever you're afraid of, but like, you don't even know. I think that's the other part of, you don't actually understand the trauma that you're feeling or what you're actually afraid of. Other, You just know you are afraid. Your body is in you know, that fight or flight mode. And because it's like, you would have to look at it in order to name it. And if you could name it, you could process it. And and we're just not doing that. We're just not doing that yet. I love all of that. And I'm thinking through your scene as you're talking, and I see that all the way through your scene. And I see opportunities here to make that even more clear okay. too, like this sense of actively trying to avoid looking for anything, and yet taking in all of this information, analyzing it for danger, 
not knowing what the danger is. Like there's this sense right? of danger is all around. The danger is unspecified and unidentified. You are screwed in that instance. So let me tell you, it is not a fun way to live. And it's not a good time. Nope. Because it's just everything's mm-hmm. dangerous because mm-hmm. you don't know. You don't know. You don't actually even understand what safety means. So how can you truly understand even what danger means? Like you don't even actually know. You're yeah. just you're just suffering. Yeah. It's just so, so painful. Yeah. It's miserable. It's miserable. So back to this idea of what does she want in the scene? What I wrote for this is that she wants to forget or she wants to escape. And I think that all of those get at what you're saying, which is that she wants to avoid the danger. She wants to avoid the negative mm-hmm. feelings. She wants to just avoid processing all of the weighty, painful stuff that she is experiencing. She's trying to avoid anything that's going to make her process any of that. She's like, that's mm-hmm. a problem. Shut it down. So love that. Okay. So my next question here is how does the scene impact the big picture and what is the value change in this scene? And this is, I laugh whenever I say value change because when I talk with my clients, they're like, value change, value change. Alice just keeps talking about the value change. The value shift is all over the place. So this is my favorite part. I'm going to tell you a few of the things that I identified as changing in this scene. And I think that As we're talking here, I'm seeing more opportunities for some even more Mm on-point value shifts. And I would be curious to see what you would say would be your most ideal value shift within this scene. What I'm seeing right now on the page, I like to start with the most literal things because I think that those are more accessible for people to see right off the bat. The most literal things in this scene are, first off, at the beginning of the scene, she's awake, and at the end of the scene, she's mm-hmm. asleep. She she takes some sleeping pills and she falls asleep. The beginning of the scene, she's on the ground. At the end of the scene, she's in the air. At the beginning of the scene, she is not drugged, which is to say that she has not taken sleeping pills and rum. And at the end of the scene, she has, so she's kind of self-medicated. At the beginning of the scene, she's holding it in. She's clearly got a lot of emotions in her. And then at the end of the scene, she's crying. So we get kind of this external outpouring of some of these emotions that she's been trying to suppress. And then this is where, so I would say that all of those kind of start at the most literal physical action within the scene, and they kind of gradually escalate to something that gets closer and closer to internal. I would say that holding it into crying is kind of the most internal that any of these get. The one that I see next is even more so. And this, I would say, is a little bit of a, of a reach, but I think that something in this arena is, is possibly the direction you're going to want to go with this. So what I saw as a potential value shift here is support to condemnation. And just to give some context for anyone who hasn't yet read the scene, basically, what happens in this scene is Janie gets into this this vehicle that takes her to the airport where she gets on this airplane that's a military transport plane. She looks out the window and watches as a casket is placed onto the plane. A, a flight attendant comes by, offers her a drink, and is very kind and supportive as she does so. A military personnel comes up from the back of the plane and offers his condolences for the loss of her husband. And then this other woman comes onto the plane and she starts screaming at her and blames her for the murder of both Janie's husband and her own husband. And she's kind of separated from her and gone to be seated at the back of the plane. 
And then Janie takes her sleeping pills and she shuts out the world and tries to fall asleep on the plane as the plane takes off. So that's the, the, the basically the action within the scene. And the, the biggest shift that I saw around here is this, this kind of support to condemnation that we go from her encountering the military escort who brings her into the car to the flight attendant who gets her on the flight and settled on the flight and brings her a Coke to the officer who comes up and offers his condolences. All of those people are being supportive. And then we have this person who comes up and condemns her. And so that's where I saw the change in her surroundings and the way that people were, were acting towards her and also kind of the change in or a possible change in the way that she speaks to herself in that scene. How does any of that sound to you? Is there a value shift in there where you're like, yes, that's it? Is there one where you're like, maybe that's it? Is there an absolute no? Or do you have something? No, else I love that. I I love the clarity that you're able to to draw there. Yeah, about all of these people that are like, they're helping her, they're being supportive. And then it's, yeah, someone else that's blaming her. It's basically... All these other people are acting like she's like, oh, poor baby, but she's blaming herself. So the when the other widow comes on the plane and says all those things, it's just reinforcing the thing she already believes about herself, which is the thing you're avoiding the most, is which is what you actually feel and think and feel about yourself. So so yeah, so I think all of that tracks really well. So in that case, it's like, so when you're analyzing a scene. And you're looking for the value shift. We see a value shift. I think this might be one of my like weird algebra solving problems that I do, where it's almost like I'm looking for like, okay, well, what was what's the climactic choice? What's the crisis? What's the thing that causes that crisis that makes that climactic choice? And like, so sometimes I think I'm looking at the cause and effect of things. I'm not going to say wrong because I don't think that's an accurate statement. But maybe in the not most in it's not the most helpful way to look at the scene. But it's almost like it doesn't actually matter because it's whatever I have to do to write it. And then we get to look at it differently as an editor, which is fantastic. And so I think it's just understanding the difference of the I have to just go, cool, those are two different processes. So whatever you have to do to get the scene down, that's why we then look at it this other way. Because I think I'm like thinking like, how do you reverse engineer the scene to make sure you have your value shift every time? Or like, there's just things I think about when I'm trying to like actually go, okay, I know what I want-ish, but then how do you actually mechanically make that happen on the page? And I think if I'm looking at the five commandments, it's almost like if I'm looking at the five commandments and I'm seeing like actions that I that I think work and I'm like, cool, that's cool. And then I almost go, well, yeah, that would make, this would make a value shift like this. My The specific thing is like her, she basically that when they finally take off the ground right the moment when the wheels of the plane actually leave the ground then it's like in that way it's like this that prompts her final crisis of are you gonna look or not right which is different it doesn't feel entirely related but maybe slightly related to condemnation like which is interesting i'm just processing this obviously right now as we're talking so it's like so i think in like, definitely I knew I wanted her to yell at her. You know, she comes in, she yells at her like it's partially, you know, I'm just thinking to kind of reveal that there's more going on. 
But then in my head, the whole time I'm thinking of her as she's doing the avoiding versus not avoiding thing. So that's where I'm coming from it as the writer of like avoid, 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 jump across the plane, close the window so you don't have to see the casket. All this awfulness happens. They throw it in your face that you can't avoid it. So you're like, I'm going to shoot this. You know, I'm going to like take this shot right now and drink this and then take my pills and I'm going to like go to sleep. And the fact that now the haze of that is falling on her, she's almost like, okay, I think I'm okay enough to look. And and she opens the window and she just like looks and she takes it in and she lets herself feel all of these feelings and she lets herself remember um, all of the things that she's leaving and all of the amazing experience that she had there. And she lets herself have that moment. And in a way, it's like, rather than it going from like, I'm avoiding everything that's painful to I'm going to look at this specific thing that is, it's like bittersweet, right? Like, because you're like, it's like she's grieving, leaving and this on losses and everything. But also she's allowing herself to remember her, all of her amazing experiences. So I don't know. I think that's, when I'm writing it, I'm thinking about, I'm re- really just focused on the, She's trying to forget and escape. But then it, it but I think it still matches the same turning point because that's the point when she can't avoid it anymore. It's absolutely in your face. And you're like, okay, it's in your face. So now what are you gonna do? And you're like, fuck it, I'm gonna look. Like, you know, and then like I'm gonna look and I'm gonna remember what's good. And I'm gonna let that like fill me up and get me the memory of that thing, even if I can't have it anymore or it's not accessible and I'm never here again or whatever. I'm going to let the memory of that thing be a thing that fuels me as I go forward into this new life. So that's interesting too, to maybe in a weird way, as she's going from external support to external condemnation, in a way there's internal condemnation to a little bit of internal support that she's allowed. She gives herself this thing that she can carry with her and, you know, just soaks up that moment. Yeah. I love all of that. I love all of that. And So one of the things I'm thinking is, well, first off, I have several thoughts in response. First thought is when you're saying the way that you approach this in your writing is to reverse engineer it. Okay, climax. Okay, so what causes that climax? Well, there'd be this crisis. So what causes her to have to make this decision where there's this turning point, like reverse engineering that? I don't think that that is incorrect at all to look at that. You want to have like four or five different tools so that you can use this tool as far as it'll get you. And then you can say, okay, so we got made this with this tool. Let's pick up the other tool now and use that to see what, what happens next. Because I also, like, that's also how I think mm-hmm. about scenes is like, okay, so what's our climax? Therefore, what's our crisis? Therefore, what's our, mm-hmm. our turning point? And one of the things is I did this two-part episode on how to edit a scene. I really ought to have just listed out all of the numbers of all of these They'll episodes be in the before show we notes. even started. It's, Don't worry. <laughs> yes, they will be in the show notes. You're welcome. Thank you, Kim. We they will link back will over be. to that. Yes, absolutely. This one is how to edit a scene part one. And how to edit a scene part one, I went through the five commandments and I walked through how I approach critiquing each piece of them. And what I found really interesting about the way I ended up structuring the, those two episodes, part one and part two, is that part one, which is the longer episode, is about the middle of the scene. I skipped the inciting incident, skipped the progressive complications, skipped the resolution, and I just went straight to the middle of the scene and looked at the turning point, the crisis, and the climax because figuring out this centerpiece is the core of the scene. And then based on whatever I figure out in the core of the scene, that I'm like, okay, so now we're going to take that and we're going to make the beginning half more clear at the beginning and the ending half more clear at the end. Like That's what we're doing at the beginning and the end. Figuring out the middle, what that change is, is the key to the scene. And so my other thought here is 
it sounds like for you, the turning point that you determined when writing this scene is very clear to you, which is the moment that that plane lifts up off the tarmac and she's in the air, actually physically leaving. Like before she wasn't leaving. Now she's leaving. It's like there's no turning back, right? It's like the it's like that ticking clock thing. And you're like, okay, this is it. It's about to be out of view. And it's it's like a silly thing to be measuring. But it's like it's just that feeling of you're you're leaving this behind and you've been avoiding it. This is your last chance. This is your last chance to savor a memory in, you know, in person with your own eyes and like give yourself this moment to let it be meaningful and to not make it wrong, to like give yourself this thing. Everybody is going to tell you was total garbage and you're a piece of now, but you get to have this moment for just a second where you go, this is what I think it is and and value it. And I don't know when it happened, but I remember writing it and I remember being like, oh yeah, let's, I want to make a really big deal out of the fact that the wheels literally come off the ground. Cause you know, that feeling in the plane, right? You can feel it when you're like, oh, we're up, we're up. And then you eventually you'll hear the landing gear go back in or whatever. So just trying to really be in that visceral moment of what it's like and what that feeling is and yeah, you're like racing yourself. You're like the plane's like, you know, going down and then you're up and then it's like, okay, what are you going to do? But okay, there's this other weird thing that I notice sometimes in scenes and just, you know, global story in general is this feeling of two turning points. So there's like a turning point that like, I think like exactly what you're saying, like, okay, support to condemnation. That's this external turning point. It's very like clear. And then it's, and I, and my hypothesis is that I don't know that I've named this to myself before, but I am right now, is that there are two turning points. One is the external genre and one is the internal genre, right? Whether you want to call it a genre, we'll just say the on the surface, literal, external stuff that's happening, right? And then there's the what's going on inside the character, their way they're making sense of things, right? That there's two moments, there's two turning points. There's the one and I'm wondering in different cases when, which one comes first? Like sometimes, it, you know, it might be the internal that comes first that prompts this external thing. Or does the external always come before the internal? I don't know. Those will be interesting things to look at at a later date. But like, yeah, so I think it's like the, yeah, you're right. That was the external turning point. But I think I'm always looking for the internal one. Like that's that's the way that I look at a story. And so that's the one I'm going for is where's the moment where I'm saying this is it's time for them to make a decision. So it's like there's the turning point that creates a shift. And then you're kind of like in this crisis of like, what are you going to do? Basically, I guess in this case, the crisis is, are you going to agree with them or not? They have just went from supporting you to telling you what you think. They're mirroring now what you've been telling yourself. Are you going to agree? Are you going to continue to internally condemn yourself? Because now they're externally condemning you too. They agree with you. Great. You should be good then. But it gives you a chance to go, okay, am I going to continue to believe that? And in this case, there's a small part of her that lets go of, of control enough in that moment to go, eh, not, I'm not going to condemn myself entirely. I'm going to give myself this thing. And so, so in that way, the looking or not looking is about condemnation. It's about are you going to punish yourself or not? Like it's this, it's this weird thing. So anyway, yeah internal shift, internal crisis, and then the climactic decision in this case. Because I think the external climactic decision is to take your sleeping pills and drink your drink as quickly as possible to get all of this shut down so I don't have to deal with them anymore. But then internally, it's about whether or not I'm going to look, whether or not the character, I always say I, 
whatever, kind of look out the window and give themselves this memory, this like chance to just soak it up. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. I like everything that you're saying. And I think that what you're saying really aligns with the fact that so when I walked through all of those value shifts, awake to asleep, on the ground to in the air, not not self-medicated to self-medicated, holding it into crying. Well, the self not self-medicated to self-medicated one, that one happens around that external turning point. But the others, asleep in the air, crying, all of those things are the very end of the scene. And part of the reason why I put the support to condemnation one in there is because, so this is, do you remember, I don't remember which training this was, whether this was the first or the second editor training, one of the trainings, Sean Coyne, the editor who created the story grid where both Kim and I trained under Sean Coyne to learn all these storytelling concepts, he was showing sample scenes to illustrate all of these different pieces of story. And in one of them, there was this scene from a movie, I have no idea what the movie was, but Essentially, what happened was you have this group of people in an all-terrain vehicle and they're driving through the forest and they're like, there's conflict, there's tension within the vehicle, but we're going to like some kind of combat situation and we got to sneak up and we got to get there. And then they get to this clearing and suddenly they're being ambushed and this literal ball of fire, like this, this rock that's on fire starts rolling down this hill at them. And they turn around and they drive the other direction. And so the turning point in that scene is that they go from approaching, like entering combat to running away because there's a literal ball of fire that's coming at them. And that visual of a literal ball of fire rolling at your character that causes them to flip what they're doing and do something else. That's the visual that I have in my head when I'm reading a scene and I'm looking for a turning point. I'm like, okay, so what part of this scene is most ball of fire problem Mm. level and so when i read this scene the ball of fire that i saw in this scene is this woman who walks up and screams at her you're a murderer i was like that's that's a ball of fire Mm -hmm. right there and so the changes that i felt were really changes that i felt at the end of the scene when she is looking out the window when she's falling asleep when she's coming to these kinds of internal resolutions But I was looking at that ball of fire and thinking, okay, so so the turning point, this ball of fire turning point that I see is this woman coming onto the plane. And I think that what you're saying is true, that there's kind of an internal and an external piece to the the change in this scene. And so, okay, I'm torn between like stating my one significant suggestion Mm -hmm. here as far as what I would offer as an opportunity in an in an edit versus asking you some some questions to kind of further dig into where you want to go with this. This is so much fun. Just so you know, I'm having so much fun. Good. I think this is where I'm going to go next with this. For you, what is the purpose of this scene? What is the scene really about at its mm. core? We've kind of circled this a lot. We've covered a lot of different elements. I think we've covered a lot of different options here. I want you to decide what do you think this scene is really about? So the thing that just struck me, and I don't think I've thought of this or named this until you asked the question, which is, I think it's it's probably something that could be said for maybe for any scene that's in, a, in, in any story, but there are certainly going to be ones that stick out that become a microcosm for the entire global story, right? Where it's like, 
ultimately the story is about, okay, what did you say? How do you find the authority to be at home in and with yourself? So it's the idea of shifting between external authority to internal authority. So that feels like this is a a miniature version of that. This is how much authority she has access to right now. It takes drugs to do it. It took a really big trigger from the outside world to do it. It took drugs. And finally, she was able to get to a place that's like, no, I'm not going to condemn myself. I'm going to give myself this thing. And it's a small thing. And maybe it's meaningless to anyone else. And it's stupid or whatever. Or maybe I think I'm still going to end up punishing myself a lot for all of this later. But for right now, in this moment, I can love myself and love looks like this thing. So I think that microcosm of the scene is what the book actually is, is this taking authority back to yourself and deciding what love looks like now here in this instance and making those choices internally and externally to follow that authority rather than either what external authority actually is or you what you perceive it to be, right? Because half the time we're perceiving it wrong anyway and they're like, why would you even think that I think that about you? And you're like, oh, I don't know. I guess I already hate myself. So I just assumed you were mad. You know, like, so it's whatever it is, it's a misunderstanding of what actually is good, you know, whatever that actually means. And then your your definition of love and good and that thing is enough for you to make, to be your own authority and to make those choices. So yeah, I wouldn't have known that until we answered this question. So for whatever, for whether better or worse, whether it stays in the book or not, whether it opens it or not, it does feel like it's a, it, it feels like it's at least getting down to the, what the, what the internal crisis of the story is. Are you going to believe them? Whether they tell you that you're okay, it's not your fault, or you're, it's absolutely your fault. Like either way, it's still them telling you what to believe about yourself. So it's not about, oh, but they're telling me I'm good, so I'm going to agree with them. Or they're telling me I'm bad and I'm going to agree with them. It's about, it doesn't actually matter what literally anyone is saying. What are you going to believe about yourself and actually trying to do that thing and and doing that thing, trusting yourself to do that thing? That's my answer. I love that. I love that idea of a microcosm of of the story as a whole. I was talking with a client earlier today about one of her scenes where we kind of shifted a little bit of the external context in the scene and then we were like wait a second you know what that opens up that opens up the opportunity for this to be the starter illustration of what this character is dealing with through the whole entire story this is the illustration to show us the starting point and at the end we're going to see her doing the opposite of this in a very similar context like we're illustrating the story in this one little scene i love that So with that in mind, I want to think a little bit about this external or this overall shift of the story, which is the authority handed to someone else to authority owned by yourself and believing that other people are defining the truth about you versus owning your own authority over your own okayness. And now let me look back at your scene because this opens up some possibilities here because I think that we're talking about this idea of avoiding to not avoiding. I think an opportunity, should you 
want to consider taking it could be something like believing what everyone around her is saying to rejecting those beliefs and just doing what she wants to do. Like, she's going to look out the window. She's going to look back. She, in this scene, where did the scene go? The moment of too many tabs is a classic moment in every editing session that I am in. So, like, I don't think that I can cut that out of the podcast. I think that that's, like, if I cut that out, I'm just, like, lying about what editing looks like with me. So other things that I'm seeing here as I'm going through all, through this scene, skimming it through, are there's a lot of... She receives a lot of respect from other people, which she doesn't feel like she deserves. It's very hard for her to receive. And then when this woman comes up and shouts at her, she kind of reflects all of the disrespect that she really pretty much believes mm -hmm. that she should should hold on to. I wonder if there's an element where she could have an underlying sense of if these people who are respecting me knew the truth, they wouldn't be acting like this. And when this other woman comes up, she's like, well, that is more of an accurate reflection of the response that I should be receiving. Like, that's how people should be treating me because that's what I deserve. It's funny because even as I'm talking about this idea of her owning her own authority and determining how she's going to think about herself, she is receiving respect at the beginning and she's not like walking through going, oh, they're respecting me. I guess I'm respectable. She's going through going, I'm a piece of I'm terrible. So like even as she's going through this, she's not like receiving positive things from other people. She's walking in this, this, with this assumption that she deserves trash. She deserves the worst. And then when she receives it, she's like, yeah, that's right. I wonder if there's this sense of, I know how this world operates. I know the box I'm supposed to be in. I know I'm outside of the box. Even if the people who are currently in the box are looking at me and thinking I'm also in the box, I secretly know underneath I'm not in the box. So when they say, welcome, when they say our condolences, when they say, you are worthy of a first-class seat on a flight back to this stately funeral. I know I have already broken the rules of this box. And if they knew, then I wouldn't be receiving this. I don't deserve the things they're doing because of the foundation that they are doing them for. Like, Based on the foundations, the reasons why they're treating me like this, I haven't earned those reasons. Like, yes, she deserves respect. She's a human being. This isn't to say she doesn't deserve respect. But if she's re receiving respect because they believe certain things about her and those certain things about her she knows inside of herself are not true, then she could be sitting here going, this respect is a lie. Like, this respect is misinformed. If they knew the truth, this isn't how they would treat me. This isn't how I would treat myself. This isn't true. And so then when this woman comes up, she's kind of reflecting the inner narrative. Yeah. She's like yeah. an external reflection yes. of the inner narrative. I think, okay, we've got our two turning points here. We've got her ball of fire woman walking in the door of the plane, and we've got her feeling the plane lift off. Both of those are our two turning points. And the ball of fire like if i just go straight to the the one note that i have from this scene it's that i wanted to see more of a 
crisis response to the ball fire mm-hmm. woman walking into the plane because it felt like she, up until that point, like she got on the plane, she asked for the Coke, she pulled out her sleeping pills and her rum, and she she got the Coke, she drank just enough of it so she could pour in the rum, she pulled out the sleeping pills, this guy comes up to give his condolences, so she's got to hide her sleeping pills and her rum, and as soon as he walks away, she goes back to pulling them out, opening up the pills, getting her pills out, holding her rum and Coke, and then this woman walks onto the plane and starts screaming at her. And right. Yes. But yeah, then in the end, fired. she ends up just doing the thing that she was already going to do anyway. She just did it faster, which isn't exactly really a sh- right. Like, right. So what is the actual, which I think is why I was like, well, it's this internal thing, but there still should be a good external crisis. Like what actually is the crisis? And is it whether to go talk to her, whether to apologize, whether to, I, I don't know, what is the crisis? I actually have no idea what it is. So that's a really great question. Right. That That is the question right there. What are her two choices? Because when I look at the crisis of a scene, I'm looking for the do this or do that binary choice. And, you know, we've talked about this. There are some there are times when the scenes get really great when you've got a, a kind of a third option there where you can somehow combine or avoid or create something new outside of both of those two options. But like on the surface. We've got the do this or the do that. And she doesn't really have to make a choice. After that woman screams at her, she takes her pills and drinks her rum. And so, yeah, that's what I was wondering as as I read the scene. Like, what else could she do? What are her options in that scene? What other responses could she have? And if you dig into argue with the woman or, like, have ownership over her her own narrative about how she's thinking about herself, how she's approaching herself, how she's speaking to herself, especially if that woman is an external reflection of the way that she's speaking to herself. Like, what are her options that she could do? Idea for you, if there's nothing that springs to mind, if there's nothing that springs to mind immediately, then you just get to go brainstorm some. But like, if there's nothing that springs to mind that's something that she specifically would do as a result of this woman, you could add in somebody else who comes up to her and is like, excuse me, would you like us to move you? Or would you like us to ask her to take, like, would you like us to arrange another flight or like something like somebody else could come up to her and, and create ask a choice, some kind of response. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If there's nothing that comes to mind that she would do that a choice that she would have as a result just of this woman you could extend that turning point by having somebody else basically ask her Mm. to make a choice okay that is cool so what's interesting i'm like well how would that change the scene how would that change the story like so it's like okay if it's like what sort of external crisis comes up like this sort of binary do this do that kind of thing does she yeah does she argue with her and try to defend herself does she you know, agree with her immediately. You're right. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Like, does she like just own it? Does she, you know, does she just say it out loud? Does she go try to like give her a hug? Does she like, like, what does she do? You know, like, what does she do? And I guess that's where it's like, okay, so I guess what I'm tripping out about a little bit is if I go back to my like original sort of intention with the the scene or like what I'm like, at least what I'm feeling most strongly, which is this idea of avoidance, of trying to avoid avoid anything good right you're trying to avoid it's it's weird she's trying to avoid anything bad but she's also trying to avoid anything good it's like i don't want to feel those feelings i'm going to try to avoid them but i also don't want to feel don't 
I'm, I'm also punishing myself, but only to the point where I'm not allowing myself to have good things, not to the point where I'm making myself watch the casket come out so that I can feel like about it, right? Like I have another character in another story who does that sort of to herself. So it's interesting. So she's, she really is trying to just insulate her from feeling anything because she doesn't believe that she deserves to feel good, but she's self-preserving enough to not face the bad. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? It does. It absolutely does. And so what I am thinking here in terms of practical changes in the scene, you could adjust the progressive complications a mm-hmm. little bit if you wanted mm-hmm. to, such that I'll just describe this, this scene idea that's coming into my mind and you can draw from it the kind of concepts mm-hmm. that I'm illustrating here and you can use the actions or not. But I'm, I'm imagining. What if when she got on the airplane, she was seated in kind of like midway through the aircraft and the row where she was sitting, the window was stuck. So she tried to open it up, but she couldn't open the window. So then she can't see the casket through that window. You'd probably have to find a different way for her to see the casket, whether it's out the door or something else. But like she's at a position where the where she doesn't have access to this piece of good. But when the woman comes in and is being seated on the plane, her reaction to that could be to call the flight attendant and say, could you please seat me at a different point in the plane? Could you move me farther away from this woman? And so she gets moved up to the front of the plane, and there the window is wide open and it works. And so then she has access to then look outside the window, which she wanted, maybe she wanted to do that unconsciously or like was suppressing the the that that sense of i don't deserve to th- like maybe when she was se- when she was seated by the window that didn't open she felt the sense of disappointment that she couldn't that she no longer had the option to look but she wasn't planning to look anyway like she was trying to shut herself off from that anyway and then when she's moved to the front of the plane or moved to a different seat she has the option to look and at the last moment she's like i'm taking it i will look like i have i'm now in the seat I have the window. I will look. I will look back at the good things. What's interesting is I uh, is I was thinking I almost I flipped it in my head like what if it's stuck open and she can't close it mm-hmm. and she's like stuck there and it's open and she's like can't get it shut and then when she moves she closes it immediately and then she's like you know oh my god I'm gonna look so I don't know it's just kind of interesting the idea of like. Either way, in the end, she's still giving herself permission to look. But I, I like the idea that you're like, you're still trying to avoid it, but you can't. Yeah. I mean, I guess either way, it's, whether it's stuck or not. But I like, I like the, I like that it, I like the idea of it being stuck. And whichever direction, I think yeah. either of those works. I think you have different, different, but related and yeah. similar and all relevant opportunities, whichever, whichever one of yeah. those you choose. That's cool. So, right. So adjusting the progressive complications. So, when she gets on the plane, if she's seated, yeah, seated in a, in a, like in the middle of, in a seat, whatever, she's there, she's seated. And then the woman comes on the plane. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll have to run through the different scenarios. Like, what if the other woman's already on the plane and she sees her come in or doesn't see her come in and then ends up walking by her, you know, whatever. Like, in which, what is the circumstances from which she, her and the woman like cross paths, like, and all the variations that you could have. And then therefore, which one? really is the best, makes the best progressive complications that lead to her, yeah, actually having a choice, which is, yeah, like, yeah, what are you going to do? An interesting thought 
and you can see what you make of this or not. I'm just imagining the variations in which she encounters this woman. I'm imagining maybe the woman is seated towards the back of the plane or maybe near the bathroom and so she stands up to go to the bathroom and she ends up passing this woman on the way and when the woman sees her she starts Mm -hmm. yelling at her and the woman is maybe seated around several other officials who immediately shut her down and they're like very apologetic they're very much like trying to protect Mm -hmm. Janie and Janie is like I don't deserve this protection but also like I'm not going to try to force my way through here and try to go to the bathroom so she just ends up holding it like another layer of Mm -hmm. metaphor here in terms of holding it and going back to her seat and right like, <laughs> or going back to her seat going back to request a different seat being like i'll be seated farther away from this person like i also don't need to inconvenience these other people to try to protect me from the truth so i will just self-protect by going farther yeah. away from it kind of thing yeah fun that's fun i like like this just this idea of like walking through the different variations of how the scene can play out but still in the end the meaning is still the same like it's still the meaning but just so what's going to make, what's going to feel the, feel the richest, I guess, is where you feel that shift. Okay. So what if, what if it dawned on me that even though it's a military flight or whatever, that they still probably serve alcohol on the plane? So I was like, yeah, I don't know that I really need her to bring her own alcohol on board. Like the idea of that is a little bit like, I don't know. It's just, it's for emphasis, right? But then I'm like, I don't know if that's really necessary or if she just, again, doesn't want people to know that she's drinking. I don't know that it matters. Um, but so if she does just re- does just order a regular drink, you know what I mean, to take her pills. And then after this, she's like, just kidding. I need a double right here, right now. And then uses that and then takes her pills with that. And then that's kind of taking it to that extra like, no, no, no. I don't just want to take my sleeping pills. I want to take my sleeping pills with alcohol because it's going to make it that much more like suppressive. And then I'm going to, you know, so, I mean, that feels like, yes, it, <laughs> it's the least amount of changes I have to do to the scene is a weird way to think about it. And also it's funny because I have writers do this to me all the time where they're like, well, well, then this, if we do it this way, then I only have to change this. And we're like, yeah, and it still works. And so it's interesting to actually be in that spot and going, you know, but I like everything else a lot. I don't really want to change, you know, want to change it. I don't, I don't know. Like, okay, that's how can I achieve the, achieve the crisis climax change, like make the climax look like a climax and like an actual like, oh, this is something different that she wasn't going to do before. And now she's doing this because of this thing and she's decided to go here i don't know does that make sense it does it does and i see a new opportunity mm-hmm. for you in this i like the fact that there's a clear escalation there i like the fact that instead of just taking it faster she's like oh nope i'm going well beyond my typical routine of sleeping pills and alcohol i am escalating at multiple levels beyond this is exceptional i like that and because she's doing something different than what she was previously doing she's not just following her previous plan she's adding onto it and the way i could see this playing into the end of the scene is okay as someone who does not self-medicate with sleeping pills and alcohol i'm not going to be able to speak directly to the effects or like how much more speed yeah same i don't know as a result (laughs) so you can you can you can fact check this later (laughs) but i'm just imagining that if she's taken 
like double of everything, chugging it down, trying to go to sleep as fast and as deeply as possible, that then you have this opportunity when she has, when she's on the plane, wheels are taking off, she's falling asleep, window is open, and she's like on the brink of Mm -hmm. consciousness. You could make it the conflict there that she's about to fall asleep because she took all this stuff and she took it so fast that she's about to miss this view, not only because the plane is taking off, but because she shut it down. And if she doesn't claw her way back up from the brink of unconsciousness and stick her face against that window, she will never see this place again. And so it's like like the enemy there, the, the, the conflict there is the choice that she made for mm-hmm. herself, not even like whether or not she has access to looking out the window. It's, it's, and maybe depending on the fact checking that you do, maybe like the plane hang, hangs out on the tarmac for a little bit longer, just enough where she's really on the brink of this all settling in. Especially if there's a, you know, they have kind of like a scuffly, you know, not a scuffle, but like with there's something like that, if they're like, okay, we need to make sure everybody's good, like, if they do end up needing to just reseat her, and there's a thing about the way that the weight in the plane, like where people are seated, like maybe they have to like move some things around, whatever. I don't know. But yeah, then it would give it a little yeah. bit more time to. Yeah, mm. you have tons of ways you can create that time to let those those pills sink in. And then that conflict can be like the unconsciousness, the relief from existing is there. Mm-hmm. Is she going to slip right into it or is she going to grab this last chance to look out yeah, the window? I love that so much because that feels like that feels like the that's the thing she was trying to do the whole time. And so it's not just looking out the window. It's well now in your trying to avoid this thing, you've done this to yourself where now you really you really could get exactly what you want, which is to be numb to everything. But then now you're like, I know, but yes. that's not what I really want. That's not what I really want. Yes. It's just my coping mechanism to survive. But what I really want is this other thing. And then and then having to, yeah, just even if just for a moment to like really try to get as present as possible to do that. And I love that. And I think that that is why. When I was reading the scene as the outside reader, not with writer brain, but with editor brain looking for the turning point, I think that's why I looked at the woman yeah. walking into the plane it makes sense. as the ball of fire and not the right. wheels taking off because the wheels taking off is this bump that like jolts her back into awareness and then she looks out. It just feels like you definitely did what you were intending to do in terms of making it a big deal the moment when the plane lifts off. I can feel the moment when the plane lifts off, but I don't feel the crisis choice. Right. And that's yes. like that, like, it's like, oh, it's time to decide now. It's like, it, it's that thing that like, you kind of find it in in like a beginning hook, right? You'll have the inciting incident, things will progress. Yes. And then there's that thing, that call to adventure, which feel, which is like the turning point of the beginning hook. And then you're kind of in, you know, refusal of the call or whatever and you're kind of in the crisis of the beginning hook is what are you gonna do and i like the way that cam whelan says it where she calls it the what does she call it i think she calls it a key basically you have your you know you have your shift that happens you go into denial of the call and then there is your there's this thing that happens that then basically prompts you to make your choice like 
Otherwise, you kind of would just hang out yes. in the crisis as long as possible until you're actually forced. Yes. So it feels like another turning point. It feels like another shift that's like, and it's time. What's your decision? And sometimes, like in a, I think maybe in probably even in smaller units of story, those moments are gonna, obviously going to get closer together. And sometimes they, sometimes they are the same. Like the that you know key thing that happens that prompts you to actually yes. have to close your crisis now and make your decision and action. Sometimes I think those will be the same. You know what I mean? Like they just are. But if there is going to be space between this shift that happens and now you're kind of in this larger crisis of what are you going to do, you need yes. another one that kind of like double bump that just like actually makes you finally make a choice because we'd avoid we'd avoid making a choice until we absolutely have to. So I mean, um, okay. So now I'm thinking about another yeah. episode of, my, of the podcast. One of my absolute favorites. I really enjoyed writing and recording this episode. This one is how long should it take your character to make a decision? And in that episode, I talk about two scenes. I talk about the first scene of Spinning Silver, which is another Naomi Novik book. And then I also talk about the opening scene of Seafire by Natalie C. Parker, which you will also love. Okay. The opening scene of that book is, I believe, I think 13 pages long. And in that opening scene, the protagonist, she leaves her ship, goes on to this desert island or this island to collect supplies and bring them back to the ship. She's in this world where we've got a lot of enemies, these, these basically child soldier boys called bullets. And then the turning point of that scene is she hears a crunch and she looks around and there's a bullet. Like we go from was alone to not alone. We go from safe to unsafe, like very clear turning point. The crisis of that scene is five whole pages long where she waffles between shoot and don't shoot in engaging this bullet for five pages. And a lot of stuff happens in that those five pages because you don't get five pages of a character just going, should I shoot? Should I not shoot? Should I right. shoot? Should I not shoot? That's not interesting. A lot of stuff happens. So she needs kind of a second turning point to nudge her to actually make the shoot or don't shoot decision. Which she does at Crisis is five pages long, and it does need another turning point at the end of it. And I felt that as I was reading it. So I love that you just, just like described that yeah. sense of the turning point that initiates the decision. And then if that decision takes a long time to make, something else, something has, else to has to prompt the it. final yeah. resolution of the decision. Mm -hmm. So um, okay. all that to say, let me look back at my notes to see whether there was anything else that I particularly wanted to draw out here. But I do think... I do think that we might have cracked it, Kim. I think we might have gotten yeah. to the thing that needed to happen. Yeah, this, in this feels scene. it feels really clear. It feels really clear to me right now. One, so the thing I'm kind of like I'm drawing this weird picture. Um, I make a lot of really weird notes and really weird pictures. So I'm kind of mapping like boxes lead to this, lead to this, lead to this weird thing. Okay, yes. so it's sort of this cause and effect where I'm like, okay, the original turning point is the ball of fire, right? The, the ball of fire of the woman coming on the plane. And actually, I guess I'm going to back up. I'm going to back up with her original intention was to avoid, right? That was my, that's the original intention is, ugh, I'm avoiding all yes. feelings, good, bad, avoiding all feelings, right? So she's trying to avoid feelings until she's confronted and she cannot avoid a woman screaming yes. that you're a murderer. You can't avoid that experience, right? You can try yes. to disassociate can't actually avoid it. So then in that moment, her crisis becomes, are you going to continue to avoid 
Or are you going to embrace this moment? Like almost like, are you going to just like let let the healing begin? You know, whatever. Like, are you going to just, right? You could just process it and you could start apologizing or you could, you know, whatever. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, I hear you. I agree with you. You're right. Are you going to own the way that you actually think and feel in that moment, whether that's ultimately true or not? But in that moment, that is what she thinks. Are you going to admit what you actually think and agree with her or are you going to continue to avoid? And so that becomes the crisis in that moment. Her decision and action is to double down on avoid by taking two pills with alcohol, which we can, which I think, I guess in the original one, it was just, it was like she was going to take one pill and then she takes two. But in this case, we'll go, cool, she was going to take one. Now she's going to take two with alcohol, right? Like if that kind of thing. Then the fact that she makes that climactic decision, the resolution of that decision is the fact that she is starting to like slip out of consciousness. But in this case, consciousness is fight or flight, right? It's not regular, like higher consciousness. It's, it's, it's fight or flight adrenaline mode of like, I have to avoid to be safe. So as the haze starts to fall and come on her, then it gets her to a place where, you know, the, the fight or flight, like kind of like alleviates, right? So then the fact that she gets to that place, it gives her access to the, the other thing that's under fight or flight, which is self-love, right? Which is truth, which is actual truth, which is this is a whole lot more complicated and you're a whole lot more complicated than this very black and white narrow thinking about who you are and what you are and what happened and all those things. So if it gives you access to that in that moment, then it can be like, like kind of like an exhale of like, okay. And then when you feel the wheels up at that moment, you go, I can, this is my last chance. Do I look or not look? And it's like, I have access to self-love right now. I'm going to look, right? So then it's like, I'm not going to avoid every feeling. I'm going to let myself have this good one. There's plenty of other one's coming. I'm going to give myself this one. And she only gets to that place. And, you know, because she takes the extra and it works faster, supposedly, or whatever, but gets her to that place where she has this access. Because when you are messed up like that, like when you have this much self-loathing and pain and avoidance and all of that stuff, that's why people self-medicate. And whether it's, and you could call it self-medicating whether it's with a prescription or not a prescription or whatever. But so, but medication is a thing. Like, I'm not advocating anyone to take pills with alcohol. Please don't do that. But, like, also, they do it because it helps, right? Like, it's actually doing this thing that they want, which is either avoidance, completely shut down, completely numb, I don't have to feel anything, or I actually have access to feeling something that doesn't actually feel like garbage. So that's cool. And then hopefully you can you know, you do that not as a way to live. It's not a sustainable, but sometimes it is the the tourniquet, right, that you can do just to survive long enough to get into a better place of safety where you can go, oh, yeah, that is not the way to cope with things. I'm going to actually have feelings and talk about stuff and go to therapy and whatever. But in a way, it's a strange gift, right? It's a strange gift in that moment where she, if she actually can access a different level of consciousness, because fight or flight is is suppressed because of her thing and then give herself that moment and then i think again that feels like a really interesting place to begin the story 
because at some point she's going to have to stop self-medicating and do some work. Like she's going to have to do her work. And that's what the story is about. Right? Right? Am I right? You can't see, but I just started pointing (laughs) right at Kim on camera. Nice big finger point in her face because... Going back all the way to the very beginning of this conversation, when we talked about where does the story begin, the story begins at this point where we are establishing the stakes of what she has to face. And if the stakes are what she has to face are that she has re-entered a world that thinks a certain thing about her, she's had this external experience somewhere else, that was good and beautiful, where she also went through a lot of conflict, experienced a lot of stuff, changed as a person, shared a lot of stuff with her husband, lost her husband, and is now separated from that external world where she did all that. And so she's re-entering this space. The challenge of this book is re-entering this space as a different person with different stuff on her. Then I think the landing at the airport is the point where she re-enters this world. But If this story is about her starting off avoiding and self-medicating because she just went through a lot of stuff and she doesn't have access to tools at the moment to deal with those that stuff in a different way than avoiding and self-medicating, then the story starts where she's avoiding and self-medicating. That's exactly where the story starts. It's right here when she's making the decision of do I do can I let myself look out the window and have something good? Or is the only thing that I am able to do in this situation to protect myself and survive the situation, do I just need to shut everything down? And if that, ultimately, like you can look towards the end of the book. Well, you can't look towards the end of the book because one, you haven't written it yet, but two, more importantly, you haven't decided what her transformation at the end is. Right. But this is what's so fabulous about this is this actually gives me something to think about? Like a very specific, like, yes. what is it? What actually resonates more? Because either way, both things show up in the story, right? Either way. But it's yes. what is it actually exactly. about? And I go, oh, because then yes. that tells you, yeah, where to open. Because then that's what you're, that's the signal you're sending from the very beginning, right? You're yes. still going to get the signals support each other. They they can coexist. But what are you really trying to say? And it's me having to actually make that decision and choose it to double down on that signal, right? This is what the story is about. Yeah. Interesting. Precisely. Precisely. Because this is where we I take this the small scope of the scene and the scene structure and everything we've done here and apply it to the large scope of the story. This idea that I start with the center of the scene, with the turning point crisis and climax in the beginning of my editing. And then I say, okay, so now that we've figured out what those are, let's go back to the inciting incident, make sure we set it up there. Let's go back Mm -hmm. to our resolution, make sure we wrap it up there. This is your establishing, okay, so if this conflict is around this idea of this particular element of her internal world, that's what you set up in your inciting incident because that's what you're showing the reader on page one is what her before state Mm -hmm. looks like on this topic because this is the important topic the important topic is her ability to avoid versus access all of her feelings avoid her feelings versus access and express and face them or is it walking into this world as a different person from the person which that she was when she was previously here and both of those will be in your story exactly as you said 
you need both of them. This is a novel long book. Like this is, you'll have space for, for both of them. And they create the context for each other. Each one gives you the interesting external action in which all of these internal things occur. But which one is the most important? That's where the story begins on page one. And that is where it ends on the last page right. as well. That's Just where it ends. Something else, the opposite. Okay. That is so fun. You're really good at this, Alice. I just want you to know. Like, this is so fantastic. Like, I feel I'm Yay! so excited. Okay. I'm Eek. so glad. I'm so delighted. I love that I have no idea what I'm going to do because I'm so excited to figure it out. Like, it's like, it's not a stressful problem. It's like, a what do I really want? What What is the story really about? Yeah. Because it's, you know how you said, oh, I think we did it. Like, it's that thing you work it out, you talk it out, you write it out, revise it out until you go, ah, there it is. There it is. That's it. Right. You get to that place where you're like, it just, everything just sings. Like it's just humming and everything's singing the same song. And that, that's how you know you did it. Right. You're like, feels so good. And because I haven't known how to really like end the story or even really which devices need to be her present timeline progressive complications to get her to that crisis like i don't there's a lot of mushy gushy stuff that could be all these things and i'm like i can't tell which one feels authentic because i don't right i hadn't actually named the past story is pretty clear at least you know the chunks of it right like it's pretty clear but this is great because it gives me a way i can do my like run the simulation a couple different ways and see like how does that feel globally like what if it's this well how would that look what if it was this though how would that look and that is fun i needed i needed those filters to look through so i could figure out how to make a decision you know because that's usually my downfall and so when it comes to actually writing scenes that same problem about like how do i think about this what's the actual thing i'm trying to do so that i could i know which decision to make i face that problem i'm gonna exaggerate only a little bit with every word i type like what's the next right word but what though? But what do I say? But what do I bring up? What specifically do I point at? What every detail, like it's, they're all decisions that I'm trying to make based on what aligns with the overall like thing it's trying to do. And sometimes I kind of know the thing, but getting this really, really specific about what you're really trying to say, because that becomes the ultimate decision-making filter for what tone you're going to take, what point of view narrative device you're going to use, what word choice you're going to use, like all of those things, they just become an outpouring of that intention. And having that intention is something, again, you cannot fail at. Just have one. You can't pick the wrong one. Just have one. The mistake is not picking one because even if you don't know what the ultimate one is, you can still pick one to run an experiment on. My hypothesis is that I think my intention about the story is this. If this, then these other things. And then if you go, oh, just kidding, that was not my intention. My intention is actually this, therefore. But then revisions gets really easy at that point because now you really, really, really know what you mean and you just get to go transfer all of your stuff and go, oh, it's different now. It'd be like this. And everything gets so much clearer, which is why our new favorite phrase there's no such thing as a page one rewrite because you yes. always you always know more. You can never know you can never know less about the story than when you first begin, right? So 
There's no such yes. thing as a page one rewrite because you know more now than you did. So you're not actually, you're never starting back with nothing. You're always, you always have more. So we don't have to be afraid of revisions or rewrites or anything because the more you go into the story, the more you learn about it and the more you know about it and the more you're able to name and then your decision actually, they, they get better. They get, they feel more fun, more authentic, more access, all of those things. A hundred percent. Yes. I love this so much. I'm going to have to yep. wrap us up, even though I would love to stay here forever, but we've been here for a couple yep. hours. Before we go, I want to say, first off, thank you so much, Kim, for sharing yep. your scene with me and for sharing your writing here on the podcast, because that is really exciting. I'm hoping to do this kind of thing more in the future, but you are my guinea pig. And it's a real honor to get to read and share some of your writing. I want to remind everyone that you can go to alicesudlow.com slash kimscene to get both Kim's scene and my written notes of my analysis that are here that I wrote down before we got on this call. So you can kind of see my notes that I was looking at when I was discussing all of this with Kim. And also, if you are listening to this episode and you would like this kind of analysis on your scene, then I would love to read your scene. I'm planning to offer this soon as an editing package, a kind of single scene critique. I probably will not bring everyone up on recording to actually do this kind of back and forth on the podcast with me, but I would love to do some solo episodes where I critique some scenes. So that's something that will be coming for you in the future. So keep an eye out for that. And before we go, Kim, where can listeners find you? You are awesome, and I want them to follow you as well. Um, you can go to my website. It's KimberKessler.com, K-I-M-B-E-R-K-E-S is in Sam, S is in Sam, L-E-R.com. And you can actually just join my list. And that's probably the best way because every month I do a free editing call, which is like this group editing thing. It's live, and we just get together, and we basically have the same kind of discussion that Alice and I just had. But it's not necessarily on anything. It's like we kind of go around the room. We're like, hey, what's your pain point right now? What are you struggling with? What's a question that you have about story, about editing? And we just kind of hash it out with a group of us. And basically, you know, I just it's the idea of just workshopping them to their next right step. So that's something that we do free every month. And it's super supportive group. Yeah, it's literally it's literally just for people on my list. And it's my favorite way to show up to story, which is why I love Alice so much and why I love that we got to do this because this is just this is totally my jam. So yeah, so you can come to KimberKessler.com, sign up for my list, and then just come hang out with me once a month while we talk about what you need next. Yes, I love that. Everyone should do that. Kim is a delight. I am going to wrap us up here. Thank you so Thank much, you. Kim. Thank you, everyone, for listening and I'm just excited to see what your revisions on this scene look like when I get yes, to see them next. thank you. Thank you so much. This was absolutely fabulous. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening and happy editing. You will hear more on your next draft next week. Bye, everyone. That's it for this episode of Your Next Draft. If you enjoyed what you just heard, go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And while you're at it, would you mind leaving a rating and review? That makes a huge difference in helping other writers discover this podcast, too. Plus, I love reading your reviews, and they help me know what's helpful to you so I can be sure to share more tips you'll love. All right, pick up your pin, get back to editing, and I'll see you next week with a new episode. 